1: This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network, and I'm talking to Laura Catherine Brown about her second novel, Made by Mary, an almost mythical tale about flawed bodies, spirits, and relationships, and everything people are willing to do to fix what is broken in their lives. Hi, Laura. Thank you for joining me on this New Books podcast.
0: Um, hi, Galit. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you.
1: So let's start with the traditional new books question. How did you come to write this book?
0: I was standing in line in the supermarket and I saw a very small headline. I was reading the paper and it said, um, Grandmother is mother until birth. And it was a tiny article about a woman who is giving birth to her daughter's child. And I thought it was bare bones. And I just got to really thinking about who who is this woman who was bearing her daughter's child? And what kind of daughter would she be? And how would it feel to need her mother in this way? And what would it be like for the father and the husband to see his mother-in-law pregnant with his baby? And also, suddenly I thought that the mother bearing the child would feel like a bountiful goddess. And Mm. so... Mary, the character of Mary, arrived to me on the supermarket line. <laughs> and I just started... I, think I saw
1: that same headline. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so strange. Yeah, very interesting. So the daughter, Anne, has changed her name from the name her mother gave her. And Mary, the mother, chose Moonlight as her last name. Can you talk about all the different names and name changes in the books, in the book?
0: I feel like, in large part, the book the characters in this book feel that they are not the people that they were brought up to be. they want to be who they are, and naming themselves is a way of doing that. so Anne deliberately made her name plain and normal and a kind of to pass in a sense as a normal person um whereas Mary. Who was brought up much more conventionally needed to let her freak flag fly and chose her name that way. So mm-hmm. I think that the name. I think. I think. Um, I I mentioned in my bio that I have um, been a yoga practitioner for like thirty years, and I did do it a yoga teacher training, and I taught for a number of years. And one of the things that people Did was take on spiritual names, which was in a sense, their true name, not the name their families gave them. So I I was sort of working with that aspect, like to name your true spirit self
1: and Mm. be that person so there are lots of references you give lots of references to moon circles and sisterhood and a a bowl that gives shakti energy and the benevolent aspect of devi the goddess of plenty so um can you address all of that about the the what what's the genesis of all of these ceremonies that you mention
0: i I uh, I grew up Catholic and there are many ceremonies um filled with incense and um ritual um and I was very interested in the more goddess-based wiccan religions um which are kind of newer but they also say they're more ancient and the way the the way they conduct their rituals is that there's there's a seasonal basis so rituals are organized around um spring being the rebirth and summer being the growth and fall being the harvest and winter being the sort of hibernation um and and they are to a large degree creative so that um you can invent them and the enactment of the ritual is where the power arises. Um not in the sort of basis of history or, you know, ancient religion or um the idea of a of a priest who is actually um giving you the sort of blessing from God. It's that it arises from within through the ritual and through nature, very close to nature, the Wiccan religion is.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary believes in miracles, but Anne is totally opposed to miracles, so can you address that?
0: Yes, I think um, Anne, I feel like there's people who, Anne was born to a woman who was almost overly spiritual and believing in signs and believing in the power of the goddess. And it it was her way of rebelling. Um, So because Mary believed so uh, magnanimously in miracles, Anne decided they could not possibly exist.
1: Mm. And Mary seesaws between emotions, whereas Anne is much more straight and calm. Could you talk about Mary's uh, emotional highs and lows?
0: I Mary grew, I, I feel like, so everybody who mothers tries to do exactly what their mother didn't do for them. So they... You know, we fault our mothers for how she was. We decide, well, we'll never treat our children like that. And then we go overboard the opposite way. And then, um, they, they in turn have to bring up their kids completely different than how they were brought up. And, um, Mary was brought up to be rather repressed. And so for her to, um, feel her emotions and to express them as they happen and in all of their volatility is freedom. Um, for Anne, that seems like a kind of prison. Um, and sh- so it's it's a really, Anne, Anne in a way is, um, has lived her life in opposition to her mother. And part of her journey, I think, is to understand that life can't be lived just in opposition. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a good point. So Mary buys her house with the money that her own mother sent for Anne to have much-needed surgery. How does that affect their relationship? Well, I
0: think Anne was terrified of having the surgery anyway, and I do believe that the surgery isn't always necessary for a condition such as hers. Um, She was born without a uterus and, and not really a full cervix. So there are ways to create, um, room without surgery. And I think she was terrified anyway, but Mary does have a way of rationalizing her own decisions and choices in a way as to make them appear altruistic to, to others and to herself, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. We get a glimpse of Mary's worldview when Anne points out that the daughter of her lover is a drug dealer and Mary defends this girl Cassidy as a perfect purve- quote purveyor of healing botanicals. So <laughs> is that part of her Wiccan philosophy or is that just drug culture or hippie culture?
0: That's more hippie culture than a Wiccan philosophy. Um, I, I don't, I don't think the Wiccans have, um, a drug culture at all. Um, but I, I definitely think the hippies do. And I, it almost seems like the whole Nation, in a sense, is is taking on some of that uh, that aspect of the idea of marijuana as being not so harmful after all. Um, I don't know if people actually think it's a healing botanical plant, but some people do. So the drugs were separate. The drugs were the hippies. The Wiccan is the Is, is the spiritual aspect.
1: Right. We should, at this point, also mention that she, um, Mary insists that she gave birth during the Woodstock Festival. So she really is truly in the hippie era and lived as one, right?
0: Yes. And and she has an image of herself that she feels very invested in portraying. Um, so in fact, that was a lie. Anne was not born at the Woodstock Festival. Um, Mary invented that story because she liked it and she wanted that to have happened. She was on her way there, but Anne ended up being born in a small town in Colorado.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So while we're talking about the pot and drug culture, there's a, a vast amount of drinking and smoking in this book. And there's also a subplot involving marijuana cultivation. You want to address that a little bit?
0: Yes. Um, when they undertake this um, advanced reproductive technology, which is, you know, the surrogacy and in vitro fertilization and all of the um, medications and injections that come along with that, um, they that is a very expensive undertaking. And, I'm always interested actually in how people manage to um, get the things they want even when they can't possibly afford them and that was one way they decided they could earn money was to cultivate pot um, and sell it um, they're not that savvy so it it didn't earn them that much money but I, it it got them some so and I was just, i was very interested in um, how would would a group of sort of countercultural people who didn't have money but who are doing this very kind of technologically advanced thing, how would they manage to afford it and to even justify it to themselves? Mm -hmm. So that was one of the questions.
1: And then there's more about marijuana. So Anne lives with her husband, Joel, in a trailer while their house is being built. They met Um, while playing guitar in a band and they still make music together, he's really supportive, tries to make her happy, also wants a child. Like, could you have created a more perfect husband? Anyway, the only problem is that he was once arrested for possession. When he was 18, possession and intent to sell marijuana. And that's what prevents them from being accepted as adoptive parents. Right? So is that based on something?
0: Um i It's true that a felon someone with a felon that is one of the questions that would have been asked in any um adoption agency, and it would have prevented um that would have prevented potential parents from becoming parents i think so that is one aspect of it um I mean the other one was a kind of i uh, I would call it a plot point because um ultimately the arrangement that Anne and Mary get themselves into. I just, Anne would never have agreed to it without being at her wits end and at the end of her tether. Like, so she would have had to try another way to have her baby that she wants.
1: Yeah. So she tried everything. It's true. Um, Let's talk about a couple of the peripheral, but important players in the story, like Joel's aging mother, um, Betty, or the young woman uh, uh, that they originally try to help, who the pregnant young teenager. Can you address those?
0: Yes. Um, so in a sense, um, I'm going to answer indirectly because I feel that place was very important in the novel. And that place was um, Sullivan County, which is a rural county in upstate New York, um, where the actual Woodstock Concert took place, which was the town of Bethel, not the town of Woodstock. Um, and it's actually a very depressed county. And I, I was interested in the very in the in the in a kind of class system within that county. And, and Jessica, the unwed, pregnant girl, is in a sense she feels that Anne and Joel are privileged. They have a house. They're going to you know sort of take care of her until she has her baby and And Betty is, um was abandoned by her husband, who kind of took off when the Woodstock concert happened. and so i I feel and he, and she's an angry person, so I feel like they're that we are shaped by the encounters that we have with other people, um, and we are definitely shaped by um, our mothers. and that was another aspect was the various kinds of mothering that takes place. Um, on many different levels in the book. So Jessica is one kind of mother. Um she she does have a baby. Betty is Joel's mother. Um Anne and Joel want to you know, Anne wants to be a mother. Mary Mary is Anne's mother. And the other two characters, um, America and her daughter Cassidy, also different kind of mothering and Cassidy has kids and she's a kind of lackadaisical mother. So I I was looking at mothering from All angles,
1: yeah, lots of different perspectives. Let's talk more about America and what motivates her.
0: Um, So, America is—I've met people like America. She is one of these um, old hippies who went to the Woodstock concert and then parked herself and never left the county. And and she's a kind of she's a little bit mercenary and self-serving, but. big-hearted if you you know if you intersect with her at the right time but in a sense there's a narcissism and i think Mary too has a narcissism but um but in the course of the novel Mary expands her her view and her um and the love in her heart and America remains as she has always been hmm So
1: going back to the moment when Mary offers to carry Anne's child, Mary says that her research shows that age matters for the eggs, but not for the uterus. How true is that? Can you address that?
0: Yes, um, that is actually very true. Um, Eggs, I think, uh, you know, I mean, all women are individual, but at a certain um, age, a woman's eggs are not going to be viable. I think a woman is born with a certain number of eggs, and a, and at a time like perimenopause or even sometimes a little bit before that, the eggs are less likely to be, um, even if they are fertilized, maybe there will be some chromosomal damage. Um, a uterus is, there is no age. So um, when you think about people using surrogate eggs, like they use, they they get an egg donor. It's because their uterus is still completely fine, but their eggs have aged out. Is the wrong way to put it, but in a in a sense, that's what happens. So um, that's that's actually very true.
1: Um, more on this part of it. Uh, this is kind of a disturbing statistic that the fertility doctor. The Fertility Center doctor brags about the 45% success rate, although um, in their contract, they have very little choice. They pay a huge amount, an inordinate amount of money, and there's no guarantees, but the success rate is 45%. Is that typical?
0: Well, I think it may be different now because uh technolo- technology has advanced somewhat um but nobody talks about the failures of in vitro fertilization um but there's far more failures than there are successes we see all the successes all the twins and all the you know all of the babies born through in vitro fertilization no one no one mentions all the ones that aren't born and so um things may have changed since 2000 when this book took place. So maybe success rates are higher. They are certainly higher. The younger a woman is, the younger the eggs are, uh, the higher the rate of success. So the idea that it's always successful seems to be a kind of accepted idea that you do your, you do your in vitro fertilization and there's a baby at the other end of it. But, but failure is far more common than success. And many people do it many times before they finally come out with a baby. And there is no like increased chance, like the second time or the third time, it's always back to zero. And so it can be really expensive and people, um, mortgage their houses. They just go into debt because this, this is what they want in life. So I I find it that the failure should be something we should talk about more often.
1: I agree. Um, there's two doctors in the book and their nicknames, they, they call them either. The first one is the fish. And the second one is God. Could you talk about these two doctors and the contrast between them?
0: Well, the fish is, you know, a former Grateful Dead follower and um, also a Woodstock, uh, call him a Woodstock concert leftover. But he's, a, you know, much more holistic, spiritual, um, personal contact kind of uh, doctor, like a a uh, old school family practitioner. Um, the one they call Dr. God is much more of a technician and he's overseeing this center for reproductive technology. So you meet with him once, you know, you, you pay the nurses and the rest of the time, you're really not going to see him, um, until your exit interview or when, you know, when you get pregnant and then he's out of the picture and you're back to your obgyne doctor.
1: Hmm. Um. So while Mary and Anne are undergoing their injections leading up to IVF, which is really actually something very beautiful that they, they do together, Anne is delighted when America's daughter Cassidy asks her to babysit. And then she wonders if there's something wrong with her for loving children too much, for wanting so much more than anything in the world to have a child. Can you address that?
0: I think she was brought up, um, and I I would say I was probably brought up this way too, um, coming of age in the 70s and 80s, um, where I was kind of taught that um, you didn't have to have children. In fact, not only did you not have to have them, maybe you'd be better off finding your fulfillment another way. And um, now the world was open for women, so we could have all these options. Um it's just so interesting given the world that we're in today and the whole um society and everything that's in the news that we see that not much has changed since the seventies or eighties. But Anne Mary has sort of kind of poo-poos this idea of of having a instinct or a love and a need and a want. have children, but then she already has one, so easy for her to say. Um, And I think Anne was one of these people who knew, right, when she knew who she was, that, oh, I'm going to have be surrounded by children, my children. And she also had an idea of doing it differently than she was mothered. Um, And so it was this cruel irony that she discovered as a teenager that she couldn't have children. um, And she had to, she couldn't let go of that. So I feel that one of the storylines in terms of the Anne and Mary was this um, growing recognition of each other as women, not as a separate from their roles as mother and daughter. So I think that for me and my mother, I will, I'll just get very personal. I feel like we've, we've grown to appreciate each other as two women in the world who may have been friends if we had met in an office, say, if we'd worked together. So I feel that um, something of that happened with Anne and Mary.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a scene when Anne shares how unhappy she was growing up in the commune, and Mary is shocked. So in addition to the storyline about mothers, there's a special section about mother-daughter relationship, which is very beautiful, and the growth of those relationships.
0: Yes. Um, I think that for Mary, she thought she was giving Anne everything she would have wanted in her childhood. So there was a projection happening that she was projecting herself onto her daughter. And I think that happens all the time with intimate relationships. It doesn't have to just be mother-daughter. We project whatever it is we have onto that other person. And I I think that the... And, and also, Anne projected this sort of mythological power onto her mother. Well, mothers are very powerful when we're growing up. And they had to sort of recognize the person in the thick of that projection that they have put on them.
1: Yeah. There's also uh, another storyline about sisterhood. There's a sisterhood space that I'm hoping you'll touch upon and the friendships from the commune and the friendships that Mary has. Um, Sisterhood space. Could you talk about that?
0: Yes. um, I, I think that, it was very important to me to have, um, women in relationship to each other, um, within a fictional world. Um, it's not that that doesn't happen. It happens a lot in a lot of fiction we read, but, um, I didn't want them to be in relationship to each other only as it concerned men. So, um, I, I grew up with three sisters and, um, I love spaces that are just women. There's some there's some sort of freedom and intimacy that can happen. That um, I mean, I I love men, but that that just sometimes won't happen if there is a man or if it's mixed company. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm used to it. my you know we had three four girls and my mom. Um, my parents were separated, and so um, sisterhood space is very familiar to me.
1: Well, Laura, I enjoyed reading this sisterhood book. I loved the parts uh, and identified with the part about wanting children, the part about mother-daughter relationships, sister relationships, really beautifully done, and I enjoyed reading it. I've taken up so much of your time, so I just want to ask the final traditional new books question, what's next for you?
0: I am writing a third novel. It is about a frustrated visual artist who has a day job in a bank, and she gets entangled in the financial chicanery of a predatory art collector who she thinks is going to catapult her past the conventional gatekeepers. So um, it all occurs during that economic collapse of 2008, and uh, I'm looking at the role of money in the art market and what success means as opposed to creative fulfillment, they're not always the same. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm working on.
1: It sounds like a juicy novel. I'll look forward to seeing it. Wish you the best of luck and thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. And thank you for listening to
1: this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature. And today I've been talking with Laura Catherine Brown about her novel Made by Mary. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of categories. Bye now until my next conversation for the New Books Network.